In our study going through the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas have just completed their first missionary journey. They've reunited with their home church there in Syrian Antioch. But it's not long after they get back to Antioch that some brothers come down from Jerusalem and begin to cause a problem in the church. And a dilemma arises. And the dilemma is this. How can a Gentile be saved into this very Jewish religion? And put more bluntly, how Jewish does someone need to be in order to be saved? That's the issue, the dilemma that is facing the church there in Antioch. And they debate about that and ultimately appeal to Jerusalem for an answer to this very important question. And what's at stake here is nothing less than the gospel itself. What's at stake for the church at Antioch and by consequence for us as well today who are recipients of the efforts to safeguard the gospel throughout the centuries, what's at stake here is whether or not the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel is sufficient. Whether it's enough or if something else has to be added to it in order for one to be saved. And so there is a lot at stake here and they appealed to the church in Jerusalem, and this is known as the Jerusalem Council. So I'm going to read most of chapter 15. It's a long passage, but I want us to get the full context of what's happening here. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the other brothers were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they de declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God, word of the gospel, and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by making them the Holy Spirit, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting, to God, putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul 
as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions... It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we ask now that you would attend to the reading of your word by sending your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, not only to be able to interpret its meaning, but to apply it, this text and these principles to our lives so that we might be sanctified to look more like Jesus so that, for the purpose that, you might be glorified in us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick outline of this passage is that in the first five verses, grace is disputed there in Antioch as the brothers come down from Jerusalem. Then in the bulk of the passage, verses 6 through 21, grace is defended as the Jerusalem council meets and renders its decision. And then in the end, as it's delivered, as this solution is delivered by way of letter to the church in Antioch, we see grace, in fact, displayed. So grace disputed, grace defended, and then grace displayed. So we're talking this morning about grace, this passage is ultimately about the grace of God. And so we would do well to spend a few moments at the outset trying to understand what is grace. 
Jerry Bridges once said that grace is God's favor through Christ to those who deserve wrath. God's favor through Christ to those who deserve wrath. Many have defined grace as God's unmerited favor. And while that's true, it's only part of the equation. It is true that we do not in any way merit God's favor. But the opposite is also true. We do merit something. And what we merit is His wrath. What we deserve is not His favor, but His wrath because of our sin and rebellion against Him. And so grace is when we get what we do not deserve, which is God's favor, instead of getting what we do deserve, which is His wrath. And this is made possible, as Jerry Bridges says, only through Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, faith in His perfect life, His substitutionary death, and His victorious resurrection. In His perfect life, Jesus earned the righteousness that we never could in a million lifetimes. In his substitutionary death, he died in our place, taking on himself the punishment that God destined for us, that we deserve. And in his victorious resurrection, he rose again, proving that the crucifixion had defeated sin and death forever for all those who trust in Christ alone. That's grace. In helping to round out the picture of grace, Jerry Bridges also gives an illustration of grace. He talks about how when he was a young boy growing up, it wasn't uncommon where they lived for a homeless man to come to their front door asking for handouts and for his mother to prepare a plate of food for them. Bridges notes that that was unmerited favor. There's nothing that the homeless person did to earn or deserve that plate of food, but his mother gave it to them nonetheless. But what if his mother had realized that that homeless man was the man who had broken into their home weeks earlier and robbed them? Furthermore, what if his mother was both the judge, uh, the the sheriff of of the town, the prosecuting attorney of the town, and the judge of the town, such that she had the right to execute justice on that criminal? And beyond that, what if she realized that not only had this criminal, this homeless person, broken into and robbed their home, but he had broken into and robbed several homes in town. Now, as sheriff and judge, she would have a civic responsibility to execute justice on this criminal. Now, not only would it be radical for his mother to, in essence, look the other way, And prepare a plate of food for this homeless man while ignoring his crimes. Not only would that be radical, that would in essence be an act of injustice. 
Biblical grace, on the other hand, would require that his mother offer her little son, little Jerry, in his place as a substitute sacrifice to receive the justice that this homeless man himself had deserved. Now, the truly radical part of this illustration is that in this illustration, that little boy, little Jerry, was perfectly obedient to his mom. He cut the yard. He trimmed the hedges. He washed the dishes. He took out the trash. He did all of his chores and then some. And when his mother gave this criminal a plate of food, not only was the punishment that he deserved laid on her son, but his perfect obedience was in fact given to this homeless man. Church, that is what Jesus has done for us. He took the penalty that we deserve. He died the death death that we have earned through our rebellion against him. And not only that, he perfectly fulfilled the law such that when we place our faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, not only are we forgiven our debts, as radical as that grace is, but we're also clothed with his perfect righteousness. That is radical grace. That, that is grace that is amazing beyond comprehension. But it's also a grace that for the natural man, it simply doesn't make logical sense. Certainly we must do something to earn such a priceless gift. Surely this can't be truly free. You know what they say, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Surely we must add something to make ourselves worthy of such a gift. And that kind of mindset both underestimates God's grace and it overestimates man's ability to do anything good. But it's this very mindset that gives way to this dilemma here in Acts chapter 15 where grace will be disputed and then it will need to be defended and then ultimately we will see it displayed. Luke begins in verse 1 by recalling that some men came down from Judea, that is down from Jerusalem to Antioch, to the church there, and they were teaching the brothers, they were, they were teaching in the church, the brothers in Christ there, and what were they teaching them? Unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. There's no subtlety in this approach here. He, they, they say if you want to become a Christian, then you need to be circumcised. They're not even getting the law of Moses yet. You just need the sign of following the law of Moses, which is circumcision. This is flat out Jesus plus something else. They're saying grace through faith is good, but it's not everything. You need something else in addition to Jesus, and that something else is circumcision. Now, this is going to be a gospel issue for Paul and Barnabas, which explains why they are so intense in their 
debate about this. It says that there was no small dissension and debate about this. I bet there wasn't, knowing Paul. And then they appealed to the church in Jerusalem. There's an important sub-principle here for us. And that is that the closer an issue is to the gospel, the more intense our debate should be about it. Not everything that Paul and Barnabas encountered, either on the missionary journey or in their home church there in, in Jerusalem, received this kind of intensity of debate and dissension. But when a gospel issue arises on the order of, how is a Gentile saved? Well, that's a gospel issue. And that merits the greater attention and passion of Paul and Barnabas here, both in their debate and in their taking the issue to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. I think it's also notable that, as we read, as they make their way down to Jerusalem, they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they, they meet with the churches on the way down. And as they do so, they recount the, the grace that has been poured out on the Gentiles in their missionary, on their missionary journey. And, and how do those believers respond? They rejoice. They find great joy in that. And that is the right response for believers in Christ when they see the radical grace of Jesus Christ poured out on sinners. Same thing happens when they get to Jerusalem. They welcome them. They rejoice as they recall what God has done through them on that missionary journey. But some of them, verse 5, believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So now, now not only do they want them to be circumcised, they want them to follow the law of Moses. In other words, they say that in order for them to become true Christians, they also have to become Jews. Now, why do the Pharisees say this? Well, for one, it was tradition. This is the way it's always been. If, if a Gentile wanted to believe in the Jewish God, and, and follow the God of Israel, Yahweh, well, then they would need to be circumcised and they would need to follow the law of Moses just like all of the other Jews. This is just the way it's always been. And up until now, Jesus, uh, Christianity has been very Jewish in its origin. And so it only stands to reason that these folks would continue to think that if someone was going to be a part of this very Jewish religion had very Jewish roots, then they would do it the very same way the Gentiles have been doing it for centuries. They'd get circumcised and they'd follow the law of Moses. But there's something else at play here, and it has to do with the human heart. Our flesh simply cannot bring itself to accept the fact that it is utterly powerless to do anything to save us from what we deserve. Our flesh wants to be part of the solution. Our flesh wants to be recognized as useful in this. It wants to be congratulated as accomplishing at least part of our salvation. And so it says to us, faith in Jesus is great, but it's insufficient. It's important, critical even, to have faith in Jesus but it's not quite enough, they say. Something else needs to be added to it. 
And for these Pharisees, these Judaizers, as Paul will call them in the book of letter to the Galatians, for them what is added to Jesus is circumcision and following the law of Moses. We should recognize here before we go on to the defense of grace that if we're not careful, we can do the very same thing today. We can say, in essence, faith in Jesus is really important, critical even. But if we really want to be saved, then we should also blank. And whatever we put in that blank is what we're adding to Jesus. And whatever we put in that blank is what we're adding to grace. And hear this, church. Don't miss this. When we add anything to grace, it's no longer grace. Grace is unearned. Remember the story of our illustration about Jerry Bridges' mom's house and the homeless man who comes by. In that illustration, he did nothing to earn that plate of food that was given to him freely. But if Jerry's mom had said, listen, this is free, you don't have to pay for it, but I just need you to cut the yard first. I just need you to trim the hedges. That's it. Just one hedge. Just trim one hedge, and then I'll give you this plate of food. At that moment, anything she required of him before she would give him the plate of food would have nullified grace. Then the plate of food would have simply been an exchange of works. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. And that's not grace. See, whenever we add anything to grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, we're doing the very same things that these Pharisees did. Very same thing. Let me be clear. Faith in Jesus plus church attendance is not grace. Faith in Jesus plus baptism is not grace. Faith in Jesus plus tithing is not grace. Faith in Jesus plus fighting against indwelling sin is not grace. Faith in Jesus plus having a quiet time is not grace. Faith in Jesus, church, plus watching edifying shows on television and listening to edifying music and wearing modest clothing and eating healthy foods is not grace. Jesus plus anything nullifies grace. Anything at all, it nullifies it. Now don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do these things. We should. But when we say you can't come to Jesus by grace through faith unless you do this or you do that, then we have lost the gospel of grace and we have instituted a gospel of works. And friend, a gospel of works is no gospel at all. Because as Paul says in Romans and Galatians, no man can be justified by works of the law. Why? Because our works are just filthy rags stained by sin. We can do no good. We have no righteousness apart from Jesus. And so 
A gospel of works is no gospel at all. See, there is a tendency in our sinful hearts to want to add something to grace. Our flesh wants to be part of the solution. It it wants to be congratulated as Mr. Fix-It. And what it doesn't want is to be told that it has absolutely nothing to bring to the table in making us right before a holy God. But that is the reality of our situation. Jesus plus anything is not grace, but Jesus plus nothing is. And so grace is disputed there by the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And so it sets the stage for this Jerusalem council where grace will be defended. First on the stand is the Apostle Peter. Peter stands up first and provides a defense of grace. His defense of grace is twofold. First of all, he says that God is the one who initiated this whole ingathering of the Gentiles in Christ. He's the one who's done this. Look at verse 7. Note the activity of God. He says, God made a choice among you that my mouth, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. In other words, why would God do that if he wasn't going to save them by grace through faith? Second in verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, to the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And by the way, they didn't need to get circumcised beforehand. And so the theological implication here is that the Holy Spirit would not have been given to the Gentiles if they had not first been accepted and cleansed by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And who is it that does the cleansing? Again, it's God, verse 9. And he, God, made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So part one of Peter's defense that the grace of God was enough is that if, if the grace of God wasn't enough, if there was something else that needed to be added to grace... If there's something else that needed to be added to Jesus in order for Cornelius and his family to be made right with God back in chapter 10, then the Holy Spirit would not have been given to them. Circumcision can't be a requirement because it wasn't a requirement for God. And so now, in the present tense, for them to make circumcision a requirement for these Gentiles would be to use Paul's words which come next, Peter's words which come next, to put God to the test. The second part of Peter's defense is found in the next two verses, verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Here's part two of Peter's defense of grace. Why would we put on their necks the requirement of earning the righteousness of God through the law when that didn't work for us and that didn't work for our fathers either? Why would we now place that burden on them? Paul would later write in Romans 3 verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He will write essentially the same thing in Galatians chapter 2 where he says, we ourselves 
are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, as he repeats himself, as if we can't get it. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And Peter agrees. And so he says, it didn't work for us, so why would we require it? Of them. And apparently there's not a good answer to that because what comes next in the next verse is that the whole assembly fell silent. There's no answer to that. That was Peter's defense. Then it's Paul and Barnabas' turn to give their defense. And they stand up in verse 12 and they simply share about all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. In other words, look at the evidence of what God has done and what God is doing. He's showering these Gentiles with the grace of God, just like he did with us, and they're not circumcised. And then it was James's turn to give a defense. Now, by this time, James, who's the brother of Jesus, has assumed a role of leadership in the Jerusalem church. He's, in essence, their teaching pastor, if you will. And so he is providing a summation of a defense of grace, and then he provides a, a, he concludes with a solution. At the end of verse 13, he says, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is another name for Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people from, for his name. In other words, what we hear is happening up in Antioch and, and southern Galatia is nothing new. It, it happened at Cornelius' house down the street in Caesarea. What happened there, which we all saw and heard, is now happening all over the world to the ends of the earth. And then James says, in essence, that all of this, this great harvest of Gentile souls into the people of God... This has been part of Yahweh's sovereign plan of redemption from the very beginning. Look at verses 15 and following. He says, and with this, what happened with Cornelius and, and what's happening out in Antioch and Galatia, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. It's a quote directly from the prophet Amos saying that God's sovereign plan has been from the very beginning to include the nations, the Gentiles, the non-Jews into his eternal plan of redemptive work. And we know this to be the case from the very first promise from Yahweh to Abraham. Yahweh promises Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families, that is all the peoples or all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jewish ones, but the non-Jewish ones as well. From the very beginning, God's sovereign plan of redemption has had the nations in focus. The, 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 the nations, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, along with Israel, 
has been the aim of God's redemptive work from the very, from the very beginning. And James says that Amos is not alone in this prophecy because as he says in verse 15, the words of the prophets agree on this. Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy, whether it's Isaiah or Micah or Malachi or Zechariah or Jeremiah, over and over and over again, Old Testament prophecies speak of God's plan to include the nations in his work of redemption. And so James now says what has been prophesied is now being fulfilled to the ends of the earth. And so James renders his judgment in verses 19 through 21. Therefore, my judgment is that we shouldn't trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, from things that have been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so that was that. The decision was made. A letter was written. They sent it to the church at Antioch by way of Paul and Barnabas and a handful of others from the church in Jerusalem. But before we move on to grace delivered and displayed, I want us to consider the importance of this decision. If they had not decided as they did, what would have happened? What would have been the implications? Well, for one, we'd probably all be Jewish. Because that's exactly what they were wanting. That in order for you to become a Christian, you first have to become a Jew. You have to get circumcised. You have to follow the law of Moses, the dietary restrictions, the purity restrictions, the ceremonial laws, the whole thing. Maybe instead of a baptismal, we'd have an altar up here. We'd be offering sacrifices of bulls and offering grain offerings as well. But the Lord saw fit to ensure that this Jerusalem council got it right so that we don't have to become Jews before we become followers of Jesus and members of his family. But church, that's not even close to the most important implication of this Jerusalem council. Not even close. Far more important than us not having to become Jewish before we become Christian is the fact that this Jerusalem council in defending grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, in defending this, they were safeguarding the gospel so that it would come to us one day in truth. We talked last week in chapter 14 about how Paul and Barnabas safeguarded the gospel in Lystra as the people of that city treated them as if they were gods. And now, in chapter 15, the Jerusalem council is also safeguarding the gospel because this was a gospel issue. And if the decision that they rendered was anything other than what it was, then the church would have lost the gospel. See, insisting on Jesus plus nothing is not simply about removing barriers to faith in Jesus. That's not what it's simply about. It's, it's, it's that in part, but it's so much more than that. It's about safeguarding the gospel so that we don't lose the gospel for the next generation. It's often said that we're only one generation away from losing the gospel. One generation assumes the gospel. The next generation ignores it 
and the generation after that abandons it, forgets it. We must keep guarding this gospel of grace and proclaiming this gospel of grace so that we can pass it on to the generation of believers that will come after us if the Lord tarries. And so for us today to to defend grace, to defend the gospel of grace, we must remind ourselves daily of the primacy of the gospel, that it is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance. And we must insist on Jesus plus nothing. Scholar and pastor Dane Ortland says that we roll out of bed as functional Pharisees. He writes this, explaining that. The, the instincts beneath your instincts and the impulses way down deep inside you are law, not gospel. A good night's sleep, not a heretical sermon, is all it takes to forget the gospel of grace. And so we must preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another until Jesus takes us home. We must rehearse the gospel in our base groups with one another and insist on Jesus plus nothing. We must fight against indwelling sin, not with law, but with grace. By returning to the cross and by returning to the gospel and reminding ourselves that Jesus has won the victory over sin and it no longer holds us captive in its grip. We must learn how to grow in godliness through this gospel of grace, not through a gospel of law and works. And in so doing, we safeguard the gospel for the next generation. So grace is disputed, then it is defended, and finally it is delivered and displayed. They write a letter, they send it with Paul and Barnabas, along with a handful of other brothers, back to the church in Antioch. And I want us to look at the contents of this letter once again, beginning with verse 23. Look at how they greet them. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria, Cilicia, greetings. It's astounding here that they recognize them as full brothers in the Lord. I think, I think in our cultural vernacular, we use the word brothers so often, it's lost its familial connotation. But here's what they're saying. These, these Jewish believers are saying, you guys are our brothers because of our common union in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're our brothers. That's incredible. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled 
and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. And how is this letter received? Verse 31. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They were encouraged by what was in this letter. Now, I've got to admit to you that, that, that when, I, when I first read that and, and, I, and I look at that letter, it's difficult for me to find where's the encouragement there, right? Where's the encouragement? Because it seems as though they're putting a yoke on the Gentile believers while they're telling them we're not putting a yoke on you. It seems like they're adding to grace there. Some of you might be saying the same thing. Ken, I thought it was Jesus plus nothing, but the letter here seems to say that it's Jesus plus abstaining from food sacrificed to idols, Jesus plus abstaining from blood, Jesus plus abstaining from what has been strangled, Jesus plus abstaining from sexual immorality. It sounds like Jesus plus something to me, but it's not. It's not. On the one hand, they're saying to these Gentile believers, unequivocally that on the issue that was sent to them the answer as is an emphatic no no you do not need to be circumcised no you do not need to follow the law of Moses no you do not need to become a Jew first you can become you can be a full non-Jewish person and still have access to Jesus the Messiah by grace through faith in him. It is in fact Jesus plus nothing. But on the other hand, these additional requirements, while not being a condition for salvation, that is clear, are rather an appeal for the Gentile believers to restrict their freedom out of consideration For their Jewish brothers, who for them, the exercise of these freedoms would have been a great offense and a stumbling block. Paul would speak of this very thing in both Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Go and read that on your own time and digest what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. That that while we have the freedom to do something like eating food sacrificed to idols or eating meat from an animal that has not been properly drained of its blood according to Jewish custom. While we have the freedom in Christ to to eat those foods, if doing so would cause a weaker brother to stumble, then the law of love says that I will restrict that freedom out of consideration for my brother. So that I will not be an unnecessary offense and cause them to stumble. And in restricting their own freedoms, that's that's what the Jerusalem decree was saying. That's what they were passing along to the Gentiles there in Antioch. It is in fact Jesus plus nothing. There is no additional requirement in order to be our full brothers in Christ. However... If Jews and Gentiles are going to live and worship in unity and be sitting next to one another in the church and eating in the same fellowship hall together, 
and so embodying the unity that is in the Trinity and the gospel, then he, out of consideration for those brothers and sisters that might be offended by those things, they urge them to abstain from them out of love. And this, as they do this, as they receive this instruction and they rejoice in it, they are displaying the grace that has been defended for them down in Jerusalem. How does this apply to the church today? Well, in our efforts at safeguarding the gospel and defending grace by insisting on Jesus plus nothing, we're also going to have opportunities to limit, to display grace by limiting our freedom in Christ out of consideration for our brothers and sisters in Christ who might be needlessly offended or caused to stumble into sin because of our exercise of those freedoms. For example, though I have the freedom to partake of alcohol, if that freedom causes my brother or sister to stumble, then I should limit that freedom. And friend, that's not adding to the gospel of grace. And that's not violating Jesus plus nothing. Though there is no dress code, as it were, in the church, if the exercise of that Christian liberty causes a brother or sister in Christ to stumble, then that liberty should not be exercised so freely. And that's not adding to the gospel of grace. And that's not violating Jesus plus nothing. We could go on with many other possible examples in the church. The point is that grace defended is Jesus plus nothing, without exception. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. But grace displayed is the willingness to restrict my freedom in Christ out of love for my fellow brothers and sisters. So as we walk away from this text this morning, if you're my brother or sister in Christ, here's three brief applications. Number one, in encountering this gospel of grace afresh this morning, join me in thanking God for the grace that he has extended to us in Christ. Let us never get over the gospel of grace. We didn't earn this. We couldn't deserve this. It has been given freely to us. We are that homeless man who deserved to be punished on that porch. And he's given us so much more than a plate of food. Relish the grace of God that has been shown to us in Christ. Number two, let us work together to safeguard this gospel of grace so that we don't lose it for the next generation. Let us be deliberate about our proclamation of it and let us be deliberate about how we guard it and preserve it. And then thirdly, let's be committed to proclaiming this gospel of grace because what do they do next in Acts? They set out on their second missionary journey. Having established the gospel of grace, having it defended and declared, 
they now go out to deliver it even further to the ends of the earth. And this morning, if you're not my brother or sister in Christ, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, you can do so this morning. Because the gospel of grace is very good news. Nothing else needs to be done to make you right with God. You are a sinner who deserves eternal judgment from God, but God has sent his son to take that punishment that you deserve on himself and to give you the perfect righteousness of his son that you could never earn in a million lifetimes. That is yours by faith in Christ alone. So if, that, if that's something that you want, if, that, if that's something that you desire, that can be yours even this morning as you sit in that seat. If you repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone as your only hope. Let's pray. Father, this is such good news. If we don't see this as good news, we're either underestimating our sin or we don't understand grace. We don't consider the greatness of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, that the Son of God, the perfect spotless Lamb, is the only kind of sacrifice that could pay for the sins of mankind. Father, we pray for that person in this room, perhaps, who's never genuinely and completely trusted in Jesus Christ as their only hope. I pray that where they sit, that God, you might give them a new heart. That you might reach down into their soul and pull out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That you might grant to them faith leading to repentance. That they would stop trusting in themselves to make themselves good enough. They would stop trusting in their own works and ability to make themselves right. And would simply surrender to the grace of God displayed on Jesus Christ. Grant to them the faith to trust in Jesus' perfect life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection. Redeem for yourself a new worshiper this morning, we pray. Father, for those whom you have done just that, we are humbled by the grace that we see on the pages of Scripture. We are so thankful to be reminded that our flesh did nothing but add its sin to our guilt and was not operative in the least in our own rescue. It is all the grace of God through your Son, Jesus. Thank you, Father for rescuing a sinner like me, a sinner like my brothers and sisters before you. Help us, Father, to guard this gospel and preserve this gospel, not only for our lives, but for the lives of those who will come after us and will desperately need this gospel. And compel us, Lord, to take and proclaim this gospel to this community and to the ends of the earth for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.